really good to see you all. As Roger intimated, I was uh, I haven't been on holiday. I've been helping a Christian school out, out in Cyprus. But um, I rolled into bed this morning at about 10 to 3. So uh, it's uh, I, I've already spoken just briefly at um, Bethesda. But someone actually said to me, when we pray, don't close your eyes. And they're like, aren't they? When you're really tired and you pray, oh, you, you, you start to pray. So maybe it's better that I actually speak than I listen because I might fall asleep. But it did remind me of a time when uh, many years ago, uh, somebody uh, chaired a meeting. It wasn't very many people. The average age was ooh, probably in the 80s. And uh, the man gave up in announcements and then I got up to speak. And there was a chap asleep before I started. So I did declare, that one's not my fault. But uh, so anyway, I uh, hope, hope that uh, I don't bore you and, and, put, and put, you to, put you to sleep today. Got a, a, a subject rather than a passage. I did ask Roger if uh, there was a, a passage and he sent me back very, very long notes, which I was grateful. I, I read through them. Couldn't have dealt with all, all of the things that were in the notes. But the title here is Jesus' Enemies, Human and Spiritual. Jesus' enemies, human and spiritual. We're going to read some passages from the Gospels that are going to be scattered around. They'll all appear on the screen, apart from the first one that I'm going to read. So you don't need really to turn to them unless you want to, of course. But if we opened up Mark's Gospel, it tells us something quite wonderful. It says, the beginning of the Gospel, or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it tells us then of the greatest news that we can ever hear. And the greatest news we can ever hear is of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, as it is written in the prophets. And it goes on to describe something that, if I remember rightly, is written in Isaiah, I think it's 40. And it says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, who will prepare your way before you. The voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Just before we start thinking about the enemies, I want us to think, because we're going to refer to a number of things in Mark's Gospel and borrow a few verses from other Gospels, we can be absolutely sure of what we read is the truth. Just think now of the, can I say the chances? Of the Messiah coming, or one even who claimed to be the Messiah, if you were sceptical, and there is going to be a man just before him who comes out of the wilderness and prepares the way for Jesus Christ. We could find in a different place about what he would wear and what he would eat. Rather strange diet, rather strange clothes. And yet here we're reading verses from Isaiah 40, which are at least 2,700 years old. And when the Lord Jesus arrived, they were already 700 years old. And they came absolutely true. I've never counted them, but I quoted a lot. How many prophecies came true in the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? We could do a higher and lower, but we won't do that. It's 351, so I'm told. Never sat down and counted them. How many didn't come true? There aren't any. The only prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ that haven't come true are because they're still to happen. And we can be assured that what we read and what we refer to today is the truth and is the Word of God. 
So that's just a thing. You can see a number of incidences. It's not advancing. I think I have. Let me just push it a bit harder. Ah, there we are. Okay. So let me just read from God's Word. I want to just read these verses. I'm very small print tie dyes. I'm going to turn them up this way. It's going to turn half of my back to you anyway. In Mark 1, verses 16 to 18, it says there, As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. I want us just to think about that for a moment because we're thinking of people who were enemies of Jesus Christ. And when we just think of that, I think it comes to us as a challenge. What do we do about Jesus Christ? There are many, I'm gonna, I don't know everybody in the room, so I can't vouch for it all, but we would say we are followers of Jesus Christ. How well do we follow him? Because there will be those who are enemies of Jesus Christ in this world. There will be those who are great enemies of Jesus Christ. There will be those that follow. Those that follow at a distance. And those that follow closely. And here, the challenge goes out. Just imagine it for a moment. Two fishermen. They're probably tired. They've been fishing. They're just there. And they're sorting their nets out or whatever it is that they're doing. And then this person they've never seen before comes past and says, follow me. <laughs> what would you do? I think I would say, where are we go? What are we going to do? But we don't read any of that. We just read that immediately they left their nets and followed. I want you to imagine if you had been a disciple, Simon and Andrew or who, whichever ones, they were called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that some were true followers, and at least one wasn't. Some of them, what did they do? Well, all of them, in fact, for three and a half years, listened to his words and saw the miracles. They saw the perfect life, and they heard the great wisdom. And they had three and a half years that will never be replicated. Never happen again. What a privilege was theirs to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. But they could have sat, didn't they? And they could have said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll see you tomorrow. Well, I'm going to catch up with you in a few weeks' time. He said, follow. And they left immediately. Moving on into Mark 8, where we're thinking of, we're thinking of degrees of following. We're thinking of those who were enemies and those who stood firmly against the Lord Jesus and those who thought about it maybe for a little bit. In Mark 8 it says, he, as the Lord Jesus, said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the most amazingly challenging verse. You say, well, what exactly does it mean? Deny himself. Well... There's a song that we sometimes sing, all of my ambitions, hopes, dreams. I don't know what your ambitions, hopes, and dreams are. But you see, we can have and we can hold absolute ambitions to do all sorts of things. Things we want to do, things we want to achieve. Sometimes you hear people talk about their bucket list, all the things they want to do. Well, actually, here it says, 
whatever our selfish ambition is, if we're truly going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we are going to deny all that. Take up the cross and follow him. Back in the time of the Romans being in Israel, they were a cruel people. They crucified many innocent people, not fully innocent, only the Lord Jesus. But many people were accused of crimes that they never done. It was a rule of fear. And they would take people and crucify them. Why was it on top of a hill so everybody could see that silhouette? And the fear would spread across the people. But you see, they were made to carry their cross, or at least the cross beneath their cross, paraded through the streets. And everybody looked at those people, somebody who was as good as dead. And when we're talking about following Jesus Christ and comparing that to the enemies of Jesus Christ, how closely will we follow? Do we give up our selfish ambition? Do we say, he truly is my Lord, my Saviour, I follow, I follow him. I want to just take you on, and I'm going to turn a little bit more sideways if you don't mind. I want to take you on just a, a few verses on in Mark chapter 1. And it says that in Capernaum he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching. He taught them as one having authority, not the scribes. I can tell you something about the word of God. Because people have taught me about the word of God. I can, I can pass that on to you. But you see, the difference was that the Lord Jesus starts telling people about this wonderful book. But, well, if you were to ask me, what can I tell you about Shakespeare? I'm afraid I could tell you a little bit about Macbeth, but I've never read really the whole of it. Muddled my way through it for English literature 30-something mm, years ago. And, um, well, I couldn't tell you a lot about it. But if you were to come to some people in this room, there may well be people here who love English literature and say, oh, well, I could tell you about this play, this play, this poem, and, and so on. And they would be able to tell you a lot because they have read it. The scribes were the people who had read it. But when the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking, it says up there that they were astonished at his teaching. He taught with authority. If you really want to get to know the works of William Shakespeare, although it's not possible, the best person to have asked would have been William Shakespeare, but he wrote them. And you see, in the synagogue there in Capernaum that day, what actually happened was the one that was standing in front of them was the author, was the author of the book. Still not flipping on, I'm afraid. Let me try to squeeze it down a little bit. Okay. So was the one that was there in front of them was actually the author of the book. It's just an amazing thing. That the God who has given us this book, his word, was here upon earth in Jesus Christ. The author of the book was stood there explaining the book. No wonder they were astonished. But you see, there were those there that would have seen that. This is something that's quite amazing. This has astonished us. This has shown us that this man, whoever he is, and maybe they didn't fully recognize them, had authority. But you see, as we go on through this incident, it says there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, demon-possessed. And there you can find that there's an opposition to what the Lord Jesus Christ is seeking to do. For whenever something is done for God, 
There's a reality that Satan is real. And Satan would love to spoil anything that God is doing. There in that synagogue that day, the Lord Jesus Christ was proving through his teaching that he is the Son of God. So the devil is active. And we need to be careful about that. It says that there's a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he said, he cried out, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, his name was Jesus. He was of the town of Nazareth, but that wasn't the greatest name that he could have given. You see, what he sought to do was just lower him down the pecking order a little bit. He had just proved by his teaching that he was God. The opposition said, oh, Jesus, who comes from Nazareth. A couple of times you'll read in the Bible, oh, Jesus, the carpenter's son. And he's so, so much more than that. But you see, he then declares, Jesus of Nazareth, did you come to destroy us? Now, in that you find that although we should be careful, for Satan is powerful, Satan's demon thinks that this Son of God has come to destroy them. He recognizes one that is more powerful. So in the degrading name Jesus of Nazareth, he then actually declares that this one has greater power than him. Then he declares who he is. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the devils declare who he is they tremble. But the one that we claim to know as Lord Jesus Christ is the one that is all-powerful. He's the very Son of God. There at creation spoke this universe that we can't measure into being. And that's the one that we read about. The Lord Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet, come out of him. They're very simple words, aren't they? He declares his great power. Be quiet, come out of him. That's how the Lord Jesus Christ deals with the enemy that stands in front. It says the unclean spirit convulsed him, cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Very simple, isn't it? The Lord Jesus says, come out of him, he comes out of him. There we declare that this one is far greater, yet we see an enemy. We see an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do the people do? The reaction is they're already amazed at his teaching. They were all amazed. They questioned amongst themselves, saying... What is this? Can you imagine actually witnessing that? The Lord Jesus Christ teaching, then casting out a demon. No wonder they could say, what is this? Even the unclean spirits obey him. There will always be opposition. I wasn't going to tell you this story, but sometimes I preach on Queen Street. I don't do it very often these days. and don't, don't have time. And I can remember one of the first times that I ever went there, well, we were just standing in a circle and someone was going to pray before we preached. And this bike came screeching to a halt and suddenly someone else was praying. And as I listened, I thought, well, that's a bit strange that he's not waiting. Someone's praying and he's praying as well. And as I listened, I could hardly, could hardly hit, believe my ears. He was praying to save me. He was saying about that nothing would go on here today. He prayed about the people in the circle that their marriages would break down. He prayed that there would be calamities that would happen and that nobody would listen to the words that were spoken today. 
very wise man, around about 80, suddenly just stopped and prayed. He, saw, he said, Lord, help us to remember what your will teaches. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That day, more people listened to the gospel in that one session that I had known any time before. Satan is real. He stands there as the opposition, the spiritual opposition. We can't defeat him on our own. But Jesus Christ, God, can. His fame spread throughout the region. You can imagine that, can't you? Those stories, they, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have all the other things that people spoke of, uh, all their different stories around uh, as they do today. But just by people saying, you, you should have seen what happened in the synagogue. You, you should have seen it. People were astounded. People not quite sure what, if they could believe their eyes, that this is what happened. And his, spread, his fame spread throughout the whole region. We just go into the next chapter. We find there, not, sp not spiritual opposition so much here, but we find a different sort of opposition. Here we find that, well, there is a man and he's paralyzed. He, he, he can't, hasn't got much movement at all. In fact, he has no way of getting to the Lord Jesus. And he's got four friends. And his four friends, they put him on a mattress, always used to make me laugh as a child, put him on a mattress, used to think, you know, was it sprung? It's just some sort of mat, really. And they pick up the mat, you corner each, and off they go, and they go in to a house. The Lord Jesus is there. His fame spread around. All the people are gathering around the door, you can't get in. But it doesn't stop them. They knew that the house had a flat roof. All houses had flat roofs there. It was almost like another roof up on the, another room rather, up on the roof that they would use at different times of year. Every house had a staircase, probably made out of some sort of compacted mud uh, with, with, with some wood in it going up the side. And I always wonder how they carried him. It must have been pretty, pretty uh, tough for the guy going up those stairs at that sort of angle, but they get him up onto the roof. They're determined that he's going to get down and he's going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And they smash a hole through the roof. Often wonder what the man whose house it was built. Suddenly he's there, the Lord Jesus is in his house. People are crowding around. He's sort of, by, well, in reflection, he's sort of centered of attention. Yeah, I was in my house today. Someone starts smashing a great big hole in the roof. And the Lord Jesus is there and they lower him down right to the feet of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus knew just where to stand. Tells us a little bit about who he is, doesn't it? He knew exactly where to stand. He knew the events that were going to unfold. And he knew the attitudes of all that were around. And there we find that they let him down in his bed. But you know, there he is, right at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Whether it looked like that or not, I'm not so sure. But you know, there he is, lying on the floor. A mat, some ropes. And the Lord Jesus asks him a question. When Jesus saw their faith, he makes a great statement. He says, Sir, your sin is forgiven you, or your sins are forgiven you. That actually is probably, to those who are around, one of the most outrageous <coughs> statements that could ever have been made. There's a man lying on the floor, the Lord Jesus, they're thinking, oh, can he do this miracle? He's done other miracles, can he do this one? Yeah, he had sickness, all right. But he showed something far, far, far more important. He looks at that man in all of his need. 
You think, oh, can't move his legs. Can't move his arms. We don't know what he could move. The man's life is, well, it's just an existence, really. And the Lord Jesus looks at him and he says, your need is your sin. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now you can imagine what would have happened. You can imagine the changes in faces from those around. So can he really do that? But there were some that were enemies of the Lord Jesus that reacted in a different way. The religious people. Those religious people, they reacted completely differently. Now, to those who were in the crowd, they would have thought, well, the Lord Jesus is doing miracles. He's talking about God. Surely they will be supportive of him. Well, it's possible to be a religious enemy, isn't it? So what is it that they said? Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They spoke truth. You see, if I was to walk over to Paul, I can say because I know him quite well, if I was to walk over to Paul and punch him on the nose right now, well, I've sinned against two people. I'll have sinned against Paul. Well, I've sinned first and foremost against God. All sin is against God. And the only person that can truly forgive sin is God. And in their statement, they're derogatory. They are telling him he is speaking blasphemy because he's claiming something that is only for God. What have they missed? They've spoken truth and missed the facts. The one that was standing before them truly is God. Sometimes we do things that, well, we deny that Jesus Christ is God. You know, there's times when we try and solve our own problems. Ever prayed to God, telling him what he must do? Hmm. Difficult one. Just as an aside, sometimes we pray and we say, God, this is what you've got to do. This is the problem, but this is the solution. God might be gracious and give us that solution. But we may never know the far, far, far greater solution that he had had, that he had had for us. Jesus perceived. <laughs> That's an interesting one, isn't it? He didn't hear their words. He perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. And he said, why do you reason in your hearts these things? Oh, that tells me something else about this one that truly is God. He saw their faces, maybe. That would have been the I'm sure the crowd saw their faces as they were rather, well, they, they became enemies. They, they spoke against the Lord Jesus. But here it's really telling us this. The Lord Jesus knew two things. He knows their thoughts. And he knows their hearts. He knows what you're thinking right now. Maybe you're thinking, what she does yet? Chickens in the oven or whatever it might be. But you know, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And without them declaring their opposition, the Lord Jesus Christ had already, had already perceived it. And he asked them, he says, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? The two phrases are both quite easy, aren't they? Just as phrases. But you see, to man, arise, take up your bed and walk was impossible. Your sins are forgiven. That was impossible. But to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
they were hopeless for them. The Lord Jesus Christ, by saying, Son, your sins are forgiven you, had already healed the inside of your heart. So what does he do? Very graciously, he then says, well, he says, take up your bed and go to your house. And what happens? Immediately he rose up, took his bed and went out of the presence of them all. Very simply, there in front of the physical enemies, if you like, the religious enemies, what did he do? He didn't condemn them on the spot. He didn't punish them on the spot. He says, I've forgiven his sins. You can't see that. I'll do something physical to allow you to see exactly who it is that I am. They were all amazed. Seems to be a repeat. They're a repeat, doesn't it, all the time. They're amazed, they're astounded, they're astonished. They were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. But I'm sure there were those who maybe aren't in the vein. Some of the religious people who still were proud of who they were. And they denied, they denied the God in front of them. As we go on into... Uh, uh, this is actually in Matthew. It says, he saw Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. This tells us something about the, the grace of God. He went to a cheat, a thief, someone despised by everyone else. No one bothered with tax collectors. Remember Zacchaeus, nobody went to his house, the Lord Jesus did. And there's a man sitting in the tax office with absolute power to take from out of your wallet whatever he wanted. Roman soldier come running down the road, this man's not paying his taxes. You have no choice, just to pay up. And the Lord Jesus has time for him. Oh, you can understand why people opposed him. So we've got the spiritual realm opposing the Lord Jesus. We've got the religious realm, if you like, opposing the Lord Jesus. Surely this man, sinner, will oppose the Lord Jesus. Well, again, we find that it's the religious people that are the people who have the problem. The scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they said, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? I'm not calling anyone here a, a thief. I'm not calling anyone a tax cheat. Well, the authority of the word of God were all sinners. Only the Lord Jesus Christ could claim that he was not a sinner. Incapable of sin. We sin continually. And it's a wonderful thing that even though these religious people still cannot see who the Lord Jesus is and what it is that he's come to do, he's already said your sins are forgiven. He now goes to those who are despised by everybody else because in their lives they terrible, terrible sins. The religious people, they can't see the sin in their own hearts. And they criticize him because he bothers to go and speak to somebody that nobody, nobody else would. Jesus heard it. This time he doesn't proceed. He actually hears their words. And he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. I don't know if you've been to the doctors lately. I've never been to the doctor if, uh, you know, and he said, oh, what's wrong? I don't know nothing. Just thought they'd pop along for a bit. Doesn't happen, does it? You go to the doctors when you are ill. 
I've had to go a few times in the last few years, and well, hopefully they, they sort you out, and sometimes they put you in a queue, and nobody goes away from you. But you know, you go to the doctor because you need to be made well. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Ooh, that's a difficult phrase in itself. He came to call sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call the righteous. That doesn't mean that the uh, people that can't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, those enemies that could never repent and come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who are the righteous? Is it that there are people here on earth that are so perfect that they don't need the Lord Jesus Christ? Far from it. What the Lord Jesus is saying here, if I paraphrase it a little bit, he says, I, I'm not calling out to the self-righteous because they'll never listen. Those who think that they're good enough. He says, I've come to those who are sinners and realize that they've sinned. I'm the doctor ready to heal them. People are self-righteous. If people carry on in that way, they never get to that point where they repent. You see, when you became a Christian, repentance, we sometimes tell the children, saying sorry is not really. Not really. That's part of it. I say to the children, it's when you're truly sorry. I used to be a head teacher for a number of years, and well, Often boys were sent because they were fighting on the air. Oh, by the time they reached my office, they got their arms around each other. So uh, we were sent to fight with best friends as if they would get away with it. They never did. But you know, I used to tell them if they were sorry, it won't happen again. That's true sorry, isn't it? True repentance. I turned my back on everything that I'd done wrong. Those boys would often be back a week, two weeks later, another fight on the air. They weren't sorry at all. Nothing had changed. But here it's telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to call sinners to repentance. Those Pharisees that grumbled, those Pharisees that moaned, those Pharisees that said, why is he gone to eat with sinners? They were the righteous ones, the self-righteous ones, who were never going to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour. You can imagine them standing in that. You can imagine their pride. We don't need him. We don't need to repent. We are as religious as we can be. Look what we do. Oh, the Lord Jesus told the story about that, didn't he? <coughs> but there can be opposition from different places as well. In Mark 3, it says a multitude came together again. Seems to be another thing that's repeated all the time. There were crowds and crowds and crowds coming after the Lord Jesus, wanting to know more and more and see more and more. And when his own family heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him and they said, he is out of his mind. Well, we can know opposition from unexpected places, can't we? Here it's saying even his own earthly family saying basically they were mad. They were embarrassed at the situation. Why are the crowds all following? Why are these people? They hadn't understood entirely who he was. His own family said that he was insane. How did the Lord Jesus cope with that? Oh, it hurt. There would be no two ways for that. It hurt. 
But the Lord Jesus responds. He looked around at those that were sat with him and he said, whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister, and mother. It wasn't so much that he was looking at his own physical garment. He, he knew their hearts. He actually knew that there would be those that would change with the dependence. But as he looks around, he says this, my true family, my brother and sister and mother, are those that do my will. If we say we're Christians, have we proven? I haven't heard it much lately, but there used to be a phrase that was around quite a lot. It said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Mm. What's evidence? Well, the evidence is the things that you do, the things that you've got. What about you? Would there be enough evidence? Are you truly the family of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you do his will. You see, I suppose in one sense, yeah, being here would be God's will that we are here worshipping this morning. But you see, if I walk out of here now and I just go off and I well, do my own thing for the rest of the week, can I really say I'm part of the family of God doing his will? Remember, deny yourself, take up your cross, big challenge. But if we want to truly be numbered in the family of God, what do we need to do? We need to be doing his will. 1 John 3 verse 1 is an amazing verse. One of those verses has been turned into a chorus and you want to burst into song. You don't want me to burst into song, I can promise you. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Well, we've been thinking about the cross already. Tell me how great God's love is. <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> Beyond knowledge, that's what it says in another place. Behold what manner of love. What kind of love has God given to us? What does it say at the bottom? We should be called children of God. That's a great privilege for us. It is, it's the most amazing privilege you could ever really think of. You can be called a child of God. Now, if my father was to walk in here now, quite a few people in the room know my father, I have to confess that I used to say, well, he's shorter than me, he's got less hair than me, and he's... Uh, He's fatter than the youngest one of those things is not true. But I think he'd know that he's not, that I'm his son. Some people say to me, oh, well, if, you close, if I close my eyes, your father might as well have been speaking. Well, there we are, I don't know. Weirdly, because he did O-levels and I did GCSEs, but we got the same number. Got the same, the same number of A-levels. Both got a degree, both got a master's degree in uh, educational management. He was a head teacher for 20 something years. I was a head teacher for 17 years. A bit weird, isn't it? But sometimes you can't deny family traits. And we can have the family trait of being a son or a child, a child of God. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But you know, it comes with a bit of a challenge. It says in Mark chapter 10, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brother, sister, father, mother, wife, children, lands, for my sake, who shall not receive a hundredfold. That's a wonderful promise, but it comes with a challenge, doesn't it? This, anyone who has sacrificed anything for God will receive a hundredfold. 
Heaven's going to be wonderful, isn't it? We're going to receive basically what we've done times 100. But what's the challenge in there? What is it that we have sacrificed in our lives for God? You might look back on your life and you say, well, I did this and it was hard. I went through this and it was really hard. Look at this one he's talking about. Who has given those things for God? When faced with great choices, do this for God or do this for self. Child of God, a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is facing eternity with a reward that is a hundredfold. I think it's just an expression. It probably doesn't even declare the greatness of what God is going to give to us. The Lord Jesus Christ had spiritual enemies, religious enemies, family enemies, crowds that were against him, and ultimately crowds that caused his death. If you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he came here for you. He wants to be your saviour. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says we should call him Lord Jesus Christ. And is he truly our Lord? Directing our lives. Well, he says, whatever you do in my name, the reward will be a hundredfold. We pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for your lovely son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of him with all his power, all his wisdom and eloquence and wise words and all that he had, we think that maybe with all that, life would have been easy. We think of this one that had nowhere to lay his head. This one whose family turned against him. This one that fed crowds and eventually the crowds turned against him. This one that is the author of life and yet went to death upon a cross. Father, we just give thanks for him. We say, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. He gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us his Son that we might become children or sons of God. Father, we just give thanks for him. We would just pray that if there is anyone in this room that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour, we wouldn't give them rest until they put their faith and trust in repentance in him. But Father, we would just pray for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ to permeate into our lives, that we might live up to those challenges and Father, we thank you for the encouragement of Scripture, that whatever it is that we face, whatever it is that we go through and remain faithful, that we will receive a hundredfold in the bliss of heaven. And we don't even deserve that. Father, we give thanks in his lovely name.